Good morning, Petaluma. You're listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman from B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma, and also the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Welcome back to our program this week. And uh, in the aftermath of the tragedy that occurred to the Jewish community in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I just wanted to take a moment to reflect on that and to, of course, remember the victims, the 11 victims, the police officers who were wounded trying to help the Jewish community there. This past Saturday morning at the Nazo Jewish Center, we had a little gathering of community uh, a couple hundred people from all walks of life here in our community came together to remember them and to support uh, the notion that hate is not acceptable in our world, and we are affirming our willingness to work together to make sure that it does not happen. So we keep working on it. We keep working on it. It's hard, particularly for the Jewish community in this particular instance. This morning, I have the honor to welcome to the studio Michael Shapiro. Uh, Michael is uh, a friend. Michael is, uh, actually, he called me a number of years ago. How many years now? Oh, probably about eight years ago now. I can't believe the time has passed like that. And wanted to know if I was willing to perform a marriage for him uh, with somebody who's not from the Jewish community. And uh, I did. And we've been walking the course uh, since then in many ways. So it's great to have you here today. Uh, Michael is a, a journalist, a travel writer, uh, does some stints with the uh, Press Democrat, um, all kinds of adventures. He's an adventuresome guy. I wish I could go with him all the time. <laughs> Just got back from Nepal. We did. Yeah, yeah. We, were, we were, my wife Jackie and I were trekking in Nepal on a, a trek with Jamling Tenzing Norgay, who's the son of Tenzing Norgay, one of the first two men to summit Everest in 1953. And it was really an honor to trek with Jamling, not just because he is Tenzing's son, but because he's astoundingly knowledgeable about the people, the culture, the Buddhist religion, the Sherpa way of being. Uh, He knows everybody. So you go to a restaurant, he knows the owner, you fly on a plane, he says, okay, we're in the front. You know, he's just... He's just very well connected, but more important, he really appreciates um, both the natural environment and the cultural history of of, of the land there. And um, and we were in a region called Mustang, which is culturally Tibetan, and um, it's almost more like Tibet than Tibet today because of the the way the Chinese culture has infiltrated Tibet. Uh, so that was a real privilege. How, how did you get into, um, you know, most of us think of, oh, I'm going on a vacation, I'm going to go somewhere, but you made a life out of uh, going to different places and ultimately writing about the experience. So, yeah. how did you get, uh, where, I know you were probably born at a very young age. <laughs> you know, that's the rumor, at least, about you. I was born at a very young age. Um, yeah, so my path into journalism was pretty traditional. I worked at the school paper at UC Berkeley, the Daily Californian. And after that, I really had two apparent choices uh, for career, one of which was law and the other was journalism. And I didn't see myself as an attorney, so I got an internship at a newspaper, the 
Times Tribune in Palo Alto. I had a very typical, you know, I covered city government and crime and wrote obituaries and, and worked in news for a couple of years. And then in my mid-20s, I just decided I was not ready to just work in a newsroom the rest of my life. And so I left the paper. I spent a summer as a whitewater rafting guide because I'd always loved being on rivers. And um, and then I traveled to Central America and studied Spanish because I felt like if you're going to be a journalist in California, you should speak Spanish. And in the process of that, I, uh, I ended up going to Guatemala and I lived with a family. They had these programs where for about $100 a week, you could live with a family and they would feed you every day except Sunday. And you had a private tutor for five or six hours a day at these schools. They called them uh, language institutes. And I just wrote about it. I just thought people should know about this. So I wrote about it and I sent it to the travel editor of the San Francisco Examiner Chronicle, Don George, and he published the story. And I was like, I want to do more of this. So it wasn't like an overnight process, but when that story got published, I realized I could take my travel experiences and turn them into stories, and I've just kept at it ever since. And do you, how do you choose where you go? Do you wait for some travel magazine to call you? Do you, yeah. uh, how, how does that work? It's, it's rare that, I mean, I've developed relationships with editors now, so occasionally they do call me and they say, oh, you know, it's a year since the hurricane in Puerto Rico, so that's how I ended up in Puerto Rico in September doing a story about uh, farmers shifting from export crops to local produce, you know, growing for the local people. So that was a fun story, but that doesn't happen to me that often. What typically happens is I send out a story, and more often than not, um, I send out a pitch. I don't send out a full story. I send out, like, a one-page emailed pitch, and... The majority are rejected, but enough are accepted that I've been able to make a go of it. And of course, I'm not just a travel writer. I write, I write news, I write entertainment, I'll occasionally do a sports story, and that's part of what I like about the freelance life, is that I'm always doing something new and interesting, uh, but I'm always hustling, too. Right, so you're, but you're not beholden to any particular system or right. policies, etc., etc., in terms of what you write, how you choose what you write. Right. I can't really get fired. Well, I mean, one particular newspaper could say, I don't want your work, or a magazine could say, well, we're not interested anymore, but then I still have a dozen others who I can I can work with. So um, this thing about journalism that's uh, happening in our country today, this must be touching you in a personal way, too, because even though your writing is is not political in the sense of covering Washington or covering legislation, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But the notion that journalism is under attack constantly in our country, what's, what's your There's response? no doubt journalists are under siege, and it, it's coming from the most powerful person in the entire world. It's terrifying. I mean, what happened yesterday with Jim Acosta at CNN, he basically asked some tough questions of the president, which is exactly what he's supposed to do, and the White House revoked his press pass. And not only did they revoke his press pass, but they tried to create a fictional story about him putting his hands, as they said, on a young female White House employee to try to discredit him. I mean, anybody who watches the video can see that story is absolute fabrication. But it's really frightening. You know, you opened with the attack, the murderous attack on the synagogue in Pittsburgh. And I see some parallels here. I see that, you know, journalists... Around the world, every year, journalists get murdered for doing their jobs, for trying to tell the truth. Um, innocent people. Uh, and the parallel I see is that 
there are always these embers simmering, whether they're embers of racism or just general hatred or, you know, people who want to suppress the truth for whatever reason. And that's fueled by the rhetoric coming out of the White House these days. And it's, you know, it's more okay to be a racist in this country than it's been in my lifetime, I think, that in my living memory anyway. And I, I agree with you, too, of course. And it's very challenging and disturbing. Um, and uh, what, um, what's, what's, what's your response to the notion that, well, newspapers and media, uh, they have to write sensationalists. They have to you know, p- pick things up and pick on things in order to sell what they're marketing, which is their news stories and their advertising, which is the income that they get. And so... Uh, there, there's um, exaggerations and all this. How would you respond to that? Well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that, for example, the network news program wasn't expected to turn a profit. Um, now we have a situation where we have a 24-hour news cycle, so they're always looking for something new. Sometimes things get put on the air too quickly. Uh, they haven't been fully vetted. Occasionally people make mistakes. Occasionally, wrong information gets out there. Responsible news organizations like the New York Times and CNN correct their mistakes. And in the case of CNN, not that long ago, they fired three eminent investigative reporters for making mistakes that probably should have led to suspension, but in my opinion, not firing. But these three people lost their jobs. So I think the media has been very uh, attentive to the criticisms that with the 24-hour news cycle, sometimes things get um, not thoroughly vetted. And journalism is not perfect, but it has an essential role in our society, and, and the powers that be are trying to curtail what journalists can do because they don't want the check on their powers. They want to be able to do whatever they want to do. And journalism, I mean, a good president, not just for political reasons, but if you contrast Obama and 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 Trump, you, you can see that while there were times when Obama was very frustrated with the press and he felt like the press didn't understand what he was trying to do, he always respected the press's right to do what they do. And almost every single president, I mean, even George W. Bush, who I thought was an appallingly bad president, um, even in contrast to Trump, I still think he's an appallingly bad president, but he he had a lot more respect for the right of journalists to do their job. Right. And there's always that tension between the president and the press. Naturally. It's a natural yeah. uh, a natural tension that's part of the relationship. Yeah. And, um, yes, I understand. Yes, we're, so we're in an era now of uh, where journalists are really uh, a little worried. I, I had calls um, after the Pittsburgh thing from a local uh, reporter uh, asking me questions about what security measures we're taking at B'nai Israel mm-hmm. to. And my answer is always to the press, if I tell you what security measures we're taking, then they aren't really security measures anymore. And mm-hmm. I'm, I am frustrated by that. I understand what they're trying to do and understand the need for information, etc. But, you know, and sometimes there is that tension between my responsibility, for instance, to my organization and the community and the press is wanting information in order to convey it in some kind of article. So I, I, in the, at a very minor, minor level compared to anything going on nationally, I understand that tension at that moment. Right. And I, I would say in that situation, 
you probably respected the press's right to ask, and I, I imagine the journalists re- respected your right to Absolutely. say this is something I can't talk about. Right. And right. I think in this country, the press, you know, they will respect. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> for example, they'll <coughs> they'll respect national security concerns. Um, they won't keep pushing in those situations. So. Yeah. So I kind of want to take you back away from the the political scene there and. Uh, ask you in your travels, do you have a favorite place or a experience that you had that looms over the others, or a couple of them, or something you could talk about? Sure. Um, I mean, it's always interesting for me to think about a favorite place. For me, a lot of times, it's in a way the more recent places I've been, just because I'm um, interested in discovering new places. I was, as I mentioned, in Puerto Rico, and I'd never been to Puerto Rico, even though I grew up on the East Coast. I'd never been to Puerto Rico, and I, I, I just found what's going on there right now fascinating. I like, I like seeing places that are in transition, and I think Puerto Ricans are really trying to reclaim the island for themselves. They realized after the hurricane, they're on their own, even though they're American citizens, even though they're part of the United States. Um, they didn't get the help they needed. They didn't get food coming quickly enough. And um, so that has spurred a transition in Puerto Rico where they're trying to grow their own food. I mean, Nepal that we just spoke about, um, Nepal has traditionally been reliant on India for most of their goods. And now they're building this road between Kathmandu and China. And it's going right through this region where we were trekking, the Mustang region. So this place will be very different in three or three years when that road gets completed and there's trucks going through instead of, you know, at most like horses and motorcycles and the occasional Jeep. So it's tricky. You know, I, I am veering away from your question a little bit, but... As foreigners will come into a place like Mustang and say, oh, what a tragedy, you know, these bulldozers are here and everybody's life is changing. And then I always just try to ask questions. So I was, we were having a tour of a monastery with a monk and I said, what do you think about the coming road? And the monk said, well, like everything, good things, bad things. And then he told me a story about this woman who had a a problematic delivery of her baby and the baby ended up not surviving. And he said... If we had a road, maybe that baby would be alive today. Mm-hmm. So you just, I mean, people want connection, and roads are connection. Roads also bring a lot of problems. So it's not for us to say as visitors. It's for us, I think, to, to inquire. Um, just a couple of favorite questions from places. For me, just back to your question, it's, it's about connecting with people. And one of my favorite places is Cambodia for that because the people have been through so much. And yet they're still so open and warm and generous and friendly. And I've had, I've met some amazing people in Cambodia. So I'll, I'll, I'll just sit, I'll leave it there. Well, I, uh, I have a connection to Southeast Asia too, of course, in Thailand. And mm-hmm. so I find the people very open and friendly. And even though the nation in Thailand itself has its problems and uh, its issues and poverty is rampant as it is in Cambodia too. But there's somebody once said, uh, and I, I took it in a, uh, not in a good way. Uh, oh, those poor people in Southeast Asia, they don't mind being poor. You know, somebody told me that once uh, at a very luxurious uh, mm-hmm. gathering that I was at. And I was like, really? Is that how you look at the world? But there is a certain, and I understand now a little bit about what she was hinting at, there's a certain acceptance of life where it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean they don't want more. They don't need more in order to sustain themselves. 
properly, but there's this certain acceptance, there's a certain peacefulness about that. Did you find that experience too? Um, yes. I mean, I think that's part of the Buddhist nature is to be uh, not always striving. You know, I think Buddhism teaches you that striving can be suffering. You're always wanting what you don't have or wanting more can cause pain. Um, I just think, you know, that's such a Western perspective, what you, you just commented that, like, oh, they're so poor. You know, wealth is, there's all different kinds of wealth, and it's very unevenly distributed around the world. I think of a place like Cuba, which is very poor in terms of material wealth, but it's very rich in community. It's very rich in culture. It's very rich in sport. You know, you go everywhere, and every single block you walk down, there's music coming out from somewhere. Um, so there's a lot of wealth in Cuba. It's just not financial wealth that you can measure in a stock portfolio or something like that. And of course, in certainly America, middle class and upper class, that's how we measure things, right? right. We measure that way. Right. And uh, But somebody from Cuba might come and, and realize, oh my God, there's so much you know, spiritual communal poverty in this country. People are so lonely, which is not something y- you, know, you would think about as a type of wealth, but I, I would. I mean... Right. Um, Yes. I've always said that uh, you know, the thought that capitalism uh, sets up a certain tension among people mm-hmm. so that literally I'm in, always in competition exactly. with you. Exactly. I'm always in competition with you for because we live in this competition-based society. Mm-hmm. Higher wages, who does a better job, uh, etc. As, as a measure of success and the basketball players and the baseball players and the football players getting these huge salaries and that, that whole culture around that. So And the culture of just putting your wealth into things that show you're wealthy. I right. mean, people, whether they can afford it or not, buying a fancy car to say, oh, look at me, you know, it's stuff like that. Right. It just, it doesn't, it, it teaches us to think in terms of, our culture does, in terms of how we can, how we can make money off something. And yeah. It's a weird, kind of a weird way to look at life. It is when you look back. I remember the, when I was in Thailand the first time and I went out to a rural town to meet some people there and a family. And I just sat there. I couldn't understand one word of what was happening around me. Mm-hmm. And yet I felt totally at peace inside. Mm-hmm. Totally satisfied that this, this, it was nice. The people were engaging with each other. They were talking to me. And it was a whole different world than coming back here and being part of uh, what we've deemed the rat race of, of American life. So That's true. I appreciate your comments about the different cultural experience and the difference between poverty and riches and how we measure that. And it's interesting, people talk about, like, oh, when you went to Southeast Asia, did you experience culture shock? And I was like, well, actually, coming back here, it's more <laughs> shocking when you, you, know, you kind of, like, just being in Kathmandu for a couple of days after the trip, there's cows walking down the street because they can, and there's... Mo- and, there's a lot of traffic. I mean, Kathmandu has really yeah. grown, so it's it's kind of a risk to cross the street because motorbikes are zooming all over the place, and little cars, little taxis, and 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 then you come here, and everything is so orderly and almost sterile and clean. It just it, it's it's kind of shocking when it's that something like this even exists. <laughs> yeah. So, what what do you think your readers are looking for? In a uh, an article or a book, I know you've written a book about travel. What what are they what are what are they curious about when they're looking for if they're writing 
travel column in the newspaper or a book? What do you think? I think the first thing you have to do as a writer, especially today, is tell a story and try to grab the reader in the first few sentences and you know, share something with them that they don't know about. You know, 40 years ago, a travel writer could just say, oh, I'm in Nepal, this is what I saw. Well, that's not a travel story anymore. I mean, people can go online, people know somebody who's been to Nepal or whatever. Um, you have to meet somebody interesting and tell their story or, like I was saying, you know, write about a region that's in transition and what's being gained, what's being lost, um, what's happening, what do the people think. Um, it really uh, has changed. In it used to be you could just observe, and now you really have to shape. You know, not to the point of fiction. I mean, Isabel Allende says if you don't find a story somewhere, make one up. I mean, she's a novelist. <laughs> she has a right to do that. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you can't do that in journalism. And by the way, I, I take travel journalism as seriously as investigative reporting. You know, it's it's some people think travel and entertainment writing are the lighter side and it's I mean it's not as confrontational for example as investigative reporting but it's still journalism you're providing a service you're either letting people know about a place or you know sharing with them how to how to approach a place or a culture uh, it's important it's important you know, if you don't tell the truth about what you experience, and somebody says, oh, I want to go there. Look how he says how wonderful it is there, mm -hmm. and this, 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 and this. And they go and they don't experience it. There's a disconnect, of course, that right. happens. And, you know, experiences can vary over time or whatever. But, we, you know, we have a situation today that started with bloggers, and now people are calling themselves influencers. Mm -hmm. And the typical influencer thing, I mean, it used to be, Okay, come come to our resort, whatever. Write something nice. We'll call it a deal. Now, if you have say two hundred thousand Instagram followers, whether they're real or not, you approach these places, and they're saying, "Oh yeah, I'll come to your place for five hundred a day or a thousand a day, and I'll post a picture or two and write something nice." And uh, it's not journalism. I mean, there are some people doing good work out there on you know blogs or Instagram, but it's I think eroding the credibility of what we do as journalists. And uh, ultimately, throughout history, it has been the story mm -hmm. that has engaged people. Exactly. Uh, just like you told the story of the about the road and the man you spoke to and the cow being having been lost, etc. So the story and how you tell it is what touches the human heart, mm -hmm. and ultimately that's where we go. So in in our waning uh, minutes here of our uh, quick discussion, I. Um, I wanted to, you know, you're a member of an Israel Jewish Center and mm -hmm. uh, affirm yourself as as a Jew in the world. And I don't mean to go around advertising <laughs> it everywhere, you know. A Jew travels to Nepal, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but but how how did the Pittsburgh thing? What did you, what did you do with that inside of yourself? And what was that like for you? Yeah, it was surreal because we found out right after we had come out of the wilderness, basically. Wilderness might be a strong word, but um, we had been on this trek for 11 days, and we did have one hotel night in the middle where there was internet connectivity, but we, my wife and I, decided not to get online. So we hadn't had any news or anything for um, a week and a half or more. And then we came out, you know, feeling just kind of wide open and 
And to hear this news, you know, we heard about the pipe bombs and the, the attacks on, on a synagogue. And I just, it was, it was hard to assimilate at first. It was like, what? This, can't, this doesn't make sense. This cannot have happened. And then over time, as it sunk in, it's just this just horrible feeling of um, just, it's an attack on all of us. And I don't even mean all of us Jews. I mean every attack, whether it's a school attack or a church attack or a synagogue attack, it just feels like an attack on all of us. And we, I, I just, I was groping in Nepal, what do I do? And, you know, I wasn't with my community. I wasn't. Um, I wasn't really in a position to process it, but then just thinking about it coming home, seeing the pictures, the video, it's just, I'm still kind of groping for the proper response, but for me it's about we just have to work harder and harder for gun control. We just have to do something, and and I just don't know how to do that. Yeah, and I don't know how much longer we can keep talking about it and doing nothing in our country. Uh, This gun issue, uh, the amount of guns out there and the... It's crazy. It's, it's such a craziness, and I agree. And I agree with you that uh, it's not just about the Jewish community. It's the violence that happened in the church, in the churches. It's happened in the schoolyards. It's happened in the elementary schools, high schools, movie theaters, country music concerts, country music I mean, concerts. I mean, it's just uh, yes, and uh, and something happened. And of course, the uh, eleven people who were shot at the nightclub down in. Southern California today, absolutely. So it continues, and uh, all of us, uh, even though for us in the Jewish community we had a few moments to claim this, the pain personally that we experienced because of anti-Semitism, we fully recognize that uh, it's a bigger issue, certainly in our country and in our world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it does hit close to home. I mean, when you when you consider that you know there are people alive today who survived the Holocaust and that they've seen these waves of anti-Semitism, I can only imagine the impact this had on them, you know, to see these innocent people gunned down because they were Jewish. And in the synagogue mm-hmm. itself, and, and, mm-hmm. and being told that it's because they were Jewish. Well, I want to thank you for being with us today and sharing the, the beauty of travel, the commitment of journalism uh, that you have and have displayed in your life, and sharing it with our community. I think it's important for our Petaluma community to know people who live here and what we're doing and what we're contributing to our world, and you've done a lot for us. I thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you, Ted. And you are listening to KPCA-LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. You're listening to KPCA LP Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. Our guest uh, during this second segment of our program today is Tashfin Akram uh, from our local Muslim community. We invited him here today to share a little bit of his Petaluma experience and uh, his community experience here in uh, in our midst. It's great to have you here today. Well, thank you very much for joining, and I appreciate the invitation. That's good. That's good. So, um, you work in the Petaluma Valley, right? The physician? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I'm actually a native to Bay Area. Moved here, moved to particularly Petaluma four years ago. Um, uh-huh. I'm a physician radiologist, and uh-huh. I spent about half my time working at the Petaluma Valley Hospital here, amongst the four or five other radiologists. Oh, okay. And your family background? You were born in the United States. That's correct. So I'm actually a native Bay Area. So I was born right. in Hayward, spent ah. about half my uh, life between the Bay Area and half my life in the Midwest. Uh, my parents originally are from Pakistan, so uh-huh. they migrated here in the late 70s. Ah, okay. Uh, Hayward, Fremont, when I was uh, Director of Jewish Family and Children's Services in the East Bay, we had a big connection with the Afghan community in Fremont and did a lot of social service work with them especially around 9-11, which was a pretty precarious time, as you might recall. Uh, I don't know where you were at that particular time. Well, it's great to have you here in our community. Um, what's, what's your experience been like as a Muslim in our community? And how many, do you have an estimate of how many Muslims live in Petaluma? It's a hard number sometimes to come up with, I know. Yeah, the estimate, I, you know, it's, I would say probably the Muslims that are regularly engaging at our mosque, um, which is located on the west side of town, um, there's probably about 10 to 15 families that come there. Uh-huh. Um, there probably are two to three times that many more Muslims in the general Petaluma community, uh-huh. and I think the, the, the Petaluma mosque actually serves a larger community than just Petaluma. Um, the next m- closest mosque uh, going north would be up in Santa Rosa, uh-huh. and going south would be in Novato. And so um, Petaluma kind of sits in the middle there, so it, it tends to pool folks from uh, a lot of different areas. Um, my experience in Petaluma, actually, I've, I've been here now for four years, um, moved here with my wife and four kids. Um, immediately before this, we were in Fremont, which uh-huh. uh, um, the cultural dynamics is a little bit bigger, a okay. little bit different there. Um, the Muslim community there is probably about 30 to 40 X size. Um, there's probably about four or five different mosques in Fremont. Uh, immediately prior to that, I was actually in the suburbs of Detroit in a city called Farmington Hills, which had a very similar dynamics to Fremont in that um, the Muslim community itself was a little bit more mature, probably a 30, 40 X times just the number. Mm-hmm. And so when I first came to Petaluma, the, the, the Muslim community was a lot smaller. Um, but one thing that was very um, apparent to me just about the larger Petaluma community outside of just the Muslims, I've always felt very welcome to Petaluma. Um, not once have I come across any feeling of any sort of animosity or you don't belong here. And actually, more so, I felt more welcome here in a way. Not that I didn't feel welcome in Fremont or um, in the other communities I've lived in, because I kind of felt like as one of them, so to say, just because of, of, the, of the cultural mix there. But here, I've actually felt the opposite, that I, um, because I, cult- I look different. <laughs> Um, and we walk a little bit different, but despite that, a lot of folks have come, especially around when the when the hands were changing in the political space. People came up to and, and asked, you know, you're part of our community. Is there anything that we can do to make you feel part of a community? And I felt that was very welcoming to me. Mm-hmm. And this was, um, you know, and again, I didn't feel unwelcome in other communities I was part of, but I think it, it, people 
have a tendency here, which I've, I've, I like to you know, thank the community at large, that they've gone out of their way to actually make sure that we feel welcomed and not alienated. And I think that, that's a wonderful message to hear. Um, and uh, I hope that that reflects uh, well on our community of Petaluma, even though we do have a certain diversity here and certainly a political opinions and mm -hmm. ways that we want the world to be. But somehow we can come together and recognize uh, in everybody that there's a certain uh, quality of human life that we share with each other. And a couple of years ago, were you here when the Muslim community had the event at the Lucchese Center? I was, that but night? I happened to be traveling at that time. Oh, you were, yeah, <laughs> you went there. So there were over 300 people there, I believe, that night. And it was a wonderful opportunity for the Muslim community to uh, let themselves be seen here and not hide because in some places and because of the fears that have been developing in the country, uh, many Muslim Muslims wanted to hide and because they were afraid. So I'm really proud that our community had that event, that your, your community stood up and said, we're here, we want you to know about us, uh, and we had that wonderful evening together. And as you probably know, B'nai Israel Jewish Center shares a food pantry with uh, the Muslim community. And one Thursday night in a month at Elam Lutheran Church, we come together and serve to those who are hungry in our community. So that's a great, a great piece. One of the things that happens with uh, the Jewish community, and I suspect them, but the question is, does it, does it happen to you too? They assume that all Jews live in the same way. So if I describe the Jewish ritual, all Jews know about it, all Jews observe it. <laughs> but it's far, far, far from the truth. We make generalizations. What's the Muslim, the Muslim experience in that? Yeah, I think um, there are definitely central tenets that uh, every Muslim must adhere to and must follow by. Um, oftentimes we we'll refer, refer to them as the five pillars, and these are things that should be common across Muslims. Um, whether you live in the Philippines or China to somewhere in North America down to Brazil. Um, and these are things like, for example, tenets of faith that are uh, common, common across uh, all Muslims. However, the expression of our faith definitely varies a lot um, in terms of the garb we wear. So a typical Muslim might dress very differently, in, for example, in Saudi Arabia or in China from when, which you would see as a, a, a Muslim that's walking on the streets in, um, in America. And I think um, some, some people might frown away from the American Islam kind of term, but I think there's something tr true to that in that um, Muslims that live here or have become Muslims here um, come from a cultural background or a mix of people around them that, that is different from what might have come back from, quote, unquote, as we like to say, back home. And so I think people have expressed this by taking what they have and adopting it. So you have, while at the same time sticking to the central tenets of what Islam professes, but using that um, and taking cultural elements from who's around you and being able to express um, your Islamic faith in a way that is kind of vibes in a way that is uh, culturally sensitive to who's around you, if that makes sense. So when you, you, know, when you say that all of the um, Muslims, no matter where they are in the world, observe the five, five pillars, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or acknowledge the five pillars. There are... Because in the Jewish community, we would we might separate between a secular Jew, um, mm. a, a uh, religious Jew, and then we have denominations. And I realize in uh, in Islam, there's a whole range of different uh, sub branches. I I do, I do understand that, 
But are there, how do you recognize the secular Muslims? Are there secular Muslims? Would you use that term? That term actually does not quite exist. I mean, in, in the Islamic parlance, um, I think there are definitely Muslims who adhere um, to the Islamic law much more than some others. Um, but what's interesting is that even um, you will find, and I'm, I'm sure this is common in, in the Jewish community too, even Muslims who don't outwardly practice, they still have a um, something that deeply is rooted within them. They have a longing for the religion. Um, and and you'll see them, if, if the religion is insulted, they'll come out and be, you know, and you might not even realize that they're Muslim, but there's something deeply rooted in within these folks who even might not outwardly express their religiosity, that this is something special and sacred to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- I think that the term uh, Muslim secular, or they probably don't quite go together okay. in, in our parlance. Yeah. Right, right. And of course, the uh, within Judaism, the adherents of the religious philosophies would not say, would say uh, they're, That's right. they're, they're, they're not observant, That's they're, right. not, they're not keeping to the teachings. So That's right. I understand <laughs> that. I understand that. And uh, so what are the five pillars? Can you just run down the list? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Okay, so um, from the top, we would say it's, it's faith, and that's um, what at the uh, intellectual level a Muslim needs to believe in. So that's one God needs to believe in the many prophets that have come. And so I think one thing that maybe uh, is not clear to all um, other um, people outside of Muslims is that we actually believe in a, a, a significant number of prophets that God has sent to people to guide them. And, and many of them are common between what the Christians believe in and what, what the Jews believe in. So we believe in Abraham, Moses, Jesus, etc. Right. So that's the first one. That's faith. Um, after that is, is prayer. So Muslims, um, in recognition of the tremendous benefit that God has created in us, turn to God five times a day to thank Him for this um, tremendous life uh, thing that are around us. So that's, that's the second one is prayer. The third one is um, Recognizing, again, that benefit that God has given us and sharing that benefit to others by giving, um, by donating money, which is called zakat, but um, taking a percentage of your wealth on an annual basis and distributing it to those who are more needy of it than you are. Um, the fourth is fasting. So um, one month out of the lunar calendar, um, the Muslims uh, follow the lunar calendar, we fast for 30, depending on the length of the month, 29 or 30 days. Um, we fast from sunrise, or actually, sorry, dawn to sunset mm-hmm. for 30 days. And the last one is Hajj, which is, um, loosely can be translated as pilgrimage, but which is um, a obligation on every Muslim who is physically able to and, and financially able to make a trip out to Mecca, which is considered our holy land. And, and you and recently made Hajj, correct? Yeah, so three years ago, I had the fortunate opportunity to go. Um, mm-hmm. My Myself and my wife, we went and, and did our... Uh, religious obligation to God. And what was that like? Yeah, it's a, it's a very it's a tremendous experience um, for those who might not. So just to kind of give you the nut first, give you some of the nuts and bolts of it. Um, it's obligatory upon every Muslim who has again who is financially able to and physically able to do it um, to make a trip out to Mecca, which is um, in Saudi Arabia, um, and it's actually in honor of a tradition that was established by Abraham. Um, so the the uh, for those of you who have seen it, the, the black um, cube-like structure, which was actually Kaaba, yeah, the Kaaba, is actually was built by Abraham and his son Ishmael. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of the traditions that revolve around doing the pilgrimage or Hajj are actually in commemoration for his for his actions, for his his piety to God. And so visiting that place, which is also the direction that Muslims pray towards, and we pray five times a day, 
but a lot of the ritual activities that happen over the course of two or three days are all in honor of Abraham and, and the activities that were done by him and his wife and his son. Mm-hmm. Um, so which is interesting because that, um, there's a, the, although there are obviously many things that are unique about Islam from other the Abrahamic traditions, i.e. Christian, Christianity and Judaism, but there's still a deeply rooted connection with Muslims in recognizing the validity of those prophets that came to people and, and their piety to, um, to, you know, to, to mankind. Um, and so, struck, so you would see about three, four million Muslims go every year, and then they're doing, which is a really amazing part um, of it, is that they're doing the same thing over the course of three to four days. Um, they're literally trying to do the exact same thing over the course of three or four days, which is just um, tremendous if you think about logistics. It's hard to imagine three to four million That's people right. trying to get to the same little yeah. little spot. Yeah. yeah. But, but I think personally for me what was really uh, remarkable was that you're seeing people come from all different corners of the world, um, east, west, north, and south. And what is one of the most important tenets of that activity is that um, it's supposed to level the playing ground so to say, and what I mean by that is that everyone is dressed in the identical garb. So you cannot tell the rich from the poor, or you cannot tell from the royalty to the non-royal. And what really is that you, collectively as a Muslim community, you are standing in front of God and saying and that we are creatures of one and we are beseeching your help. And what is powerful in that to me is that we often get lost in the world these days. And you go there and the idea is that you shed away all these sort of worldly matters that you've collected and you stand in front of God, uh, devoid of any of these kind of descriptions. Is there a time on the calendar when Hajj is supposed to, is there a particular, is it just any time you can go, or? So Hajj is, uh, is a particular time of the year. Okay. Um, and, and that's why that, that, that several of these, that's why three, four million people have to come right, on that day. Right, yeah. Okay, and what, is there a significance to the date? Uh... There is a significance to date, and it is slipping my mind at that's the moment. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I, I get that one very easily. I get that one very easily. Because I, I remember seeing just news reports and all. It, it just looks like a lot of people right. in a hot place just moving around. So I really appreciate the inside information, so to speak, <laughs> from a participant to say what, what's what's happening right. uh, inside of you when you're there and what it means for you. It's uh, Everybody's supposed to go, I believe, once in their lifetime That's is correct. possible, right? Yeah. Do people make repeat trips, or what is that? Uh, is that possible? Or yeah, I know people do, and um, and you're able to make a similar kind of trip outside of of that actual time frame when Hajj is supposed to happen. Uh-huh. Um, but what's uh, what's man what's been asked of us from our God is that you do that once in your lifetime at that particular time, mm-hmm. when if you're able to. Yeah, it's uh, there's a um, comment in one of the uh, ancient Jewish books that, uh, you know, people gathered in this ancient temple in Jerusalem. And uh, some people were saying, well, how does everybody fit? Mm. Right? How does everybody fit? And so it was seen as a miraculous uh, occurrence that no matter how many people came to that holy site, they all fit in there. And so I I think of that when you're describing three to four million people trying to fit into this the space, which I'm sure is huge, but uh, but they're trying to get to this one place in there, right. and so yeah, so it's a similar uh, kind of experience that no matter how many people show up, it works. Yeah, it somehow works. No, it's it's a truly Im- a tremendous experience. Yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, one that's words can't always capture. Yeah. So wh- um, over the past few years, of course, in in our country, this the whole issue around immigration. 
has been coming out. And uh, I believe that all of us are immigrants to this country. <laughs> uh, if not uh, in the past year, then 200 years ago. But whatever, we all came from somewhere else. So um, what are the fears? Are there fears in the community? Are there, is it talked about what's going on about immigration and people who are coming from other places? Or do we feel like we're isolated here in Petaluma and everything is safe and okay? What, what, what's your take on it for yourself and for your community? Yeah, I think, you know, I think we, we're very fortunate to live in the Bay Area. Um, there are people of walks of faith and cultural diversity that you probably would, it would, it would be very difficult to find this in other places. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, in our community, we, I don't think we feel any of this. Um, but we definitely do hear about it from other communities, particularly that are further away from metropolitan areas where you just don't see that cultural mix. And I think, unfortunately, um, what, we, what you find, what I've heard from others, um, I've, I've spent most of my life living in kind of more metropolitan areas where there is a cultural diversity. So I haven't, fortunately, haven't had to experience any of this. But what we found is that communities which are more devoid of that cultural diversity often assume things about people that they've never met. And um, so a lot of the uh, Islamophobia or the kind of fears that people have about Muslims actually spawns from the fact that they've never actually ever interacted with a Muslim or realize that 95% of what a Muslim does is probably what you do anyway. And that the 5% really that might differentiate you is not significant enough to have any sort of animosity there. And so, but I think in the Bay Area, we haven't, I haven't really felt any of that. And, and fortunately, I'm, I'm happy I haven't. Um, I think. But I think, I think, like you said, Bay Area is definitely not representative of what might be happening in a lot of other places in the country. Um, and, but I think there are some, there are communities um, that might feel a little bit more um, uh, alienated a little bit. Um, but I think generally, um, despite you know what kind of the political atmosphere has happened, I think the community, as, as I think U.S. As a, as a the U.S. community as a as a whole has done a good job of trying to control that and still be welcoming. Yeah, of course. It's, uh you know, given what happened in Pittsburgh a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I get regular reports of anti-Semitic uh, incidents and uh, all over the country every day, uh, graffiti in high schools, uh, homes with swastikas on the outside, synagogues being vandalized. Every day I'm getting that. And uh, is that happening in the in the Muslim community? Uh, and what, what's what's going on with that piece of it? Yeah, I, th I think there's probably, uh, unfortunately, there's a similar sentiment. Yeah, um, exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, what has happened is that these probably elements existed in our society for many years. Um, but for better or for worse, with modernity has come the facile ability to communicate. Yeah. And I think these elements have now found grounds with other folks that might be living across the other side of the country that they have never met. And now they have found a common person who might espouse a similar characteristic or, you know, unfortunately... Um, a sense of hatred against someone. And so now they're, uh, they're more feel like justified to be able to express it because they're like, I'm not the only one. There's another guy, you know, sitting on the other side of town that might also believe this thing or whatever it is. Um, and so unfortunately, I think that, you know, just like any society that has uh, a multitude of beliefs, these have probably existed for a long time. And I think now, they, uh, unfortunately, they're just being expressed more. And, 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 and unfortunately, in some of those cases, they're expressed in very violent and um, demeaning ways. But, um, yeah, I think as a Muslim community, we do still see some of that. Unfortunately, we don't see any of that in Petaluma. <laughs> right. We have been, we've 
we've been lucky in Petaluma, although I've, uh, over the years that I've been here, we've had swastikas on mm. our building and different things happen, but probably from kids, but we don't, we, right. we don't know yeah. uh, what that was about. So at our gathering last Saturday morning at the synagogue, a number of people from the mosque uh, were with us, and we were honored that they were there as we were remembering the people who were shot, who were murdered in Pittsburgh, and recognized a profound connection that this whole community has with each other to be here to stand up and protect each other and to stand up for each other in spite of what's happening. And my goal then was not to make it about what's happening in the government, but to make it about what happens among human beings. And that pre-existed before the elections in 2016 and been going on for a long time. So the ability to connect. Yeah. I w- what does does Islam have anything to say about the other, uh, about how the the Muslim is supposed to relate to those who are not part of the faith system? Yeah, there, so I, I would say a central part of the Islamic theos is that to recognize a, an inherent um, value and honor that each human has. So, and under. Um, Islamic understanding is that everything around us is created by God. Everything is a creation of God, inanimate and the animate. Um, but amongst them, the most noble creation is actually humans. And so in, in every human being, God has put in a, a very unique ability, not only intellectually, but spiritually, to attain out of something that is not possible for any of the other creation. And because of this honor, that it is incumbent upon Muslims to honor any individual out there. It doesn't matter if that individual belongs to your faith or not. Um, and actually, um, at the last um, speech or sermon that was given by Muhammad at, at his parting time, when he saw that death was you know, soon upon him, um, one of the strong messages that he delivered in this was exactly this. And he said that all of you, and addressing, he was addressing his, his followers, but the message was actually meant to be broader. And he said, all of you are from Adam and Eve. Um, and he says, and again, his followers, because he was Arab and they were Arab, he said, an Arab is not above an, a non-Arab. A white is not above a black, and a black is not above a white. Rather, the one that is superior amongst you is the one who is pious and does good. Mm-hmm. And a strong message, and, and this was one of the main core messages that he delivered right before he left, right before God took his soul. And he didn't, and he talked about other things, but this was one thing. He realized that the inherent nature of man is to look upon others and put them down. But what he wanted to do was he wanted to leave them with an imprint saying, hey, look, this is, it doesn't matter what your color is, it doesn't matter what your race is. It, what really matters is what's in your hearts and what comes from those hearts. And another thing we have is that God does not look at your outward form or your color. Rather, he looks at your hearts and what comes from those hearts. What, how are you treating those others around you? Are you worshiping God in the way that he asked you to? And so there's a very, it's a strong central component of, of, of the Muslim theos of, of making sure that you honor the other individuals because it is not, it's not because of what you think is because God has actually honored them by giving them this special capability and this uh, and this rank above other creations. So, would would you say that this open openness that you're explaining ab- about Islam is a modern phenomenon? Is a American phenomenon? Is uh, because somebody on the other side of the world? And the same thing is true in Judaism. <laughs> so I don't want you to think I uh, would say. You know, there's a different truth. 
there, that there is about about Islam, and we distinguish between the infidels and the, and who has the faith. And we have that in the Jewish community too. So it's not a question. But this is a moderate and open society in which we live here, and that's that's. What, and I agree with you. I mean, I would say Judaism. I would say Judaism says the same thing. We agree a hundred percent on that. But what and and the other Muslims? Yeah, you know, I think I would probably make a distinction between. Um, what is supposed to be practiced? What 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 our books say, yeah. and unfortunately, what is practiced on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I mean, these are like in the, in, the, in the Quran, it mentions that we have created you um, of varying colors and varying tribes, so that you may know each other. Mm-hmm. But the righteous of you, but the best of you, are those who are righteous. So this is something that was it's it's actually it's like codified. Yeah, and but unfortunately, does it translate into actions? And uh, you know, and, and like you mentioned, unfortunately. There's sometimes a, a very large gap between what is asked of us and what actually is out there in the real world. And I so always say there's a there's a gap between the ism and the real. That's right. right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, the Judaism and how it's lived, the uh, Islam and how it's lived, Christianity and how. So uh, yes, and so I I appreciate your message because it's an important one and. We in the Jewish community felt that very much when the Muslim community showed up at our synagogue last Saturday morning to help us mourn the those who were killed and to stand with us. And uh, we were proud to be with the Muslim community a couple of years ago when we gathered with you. So it's a really important message. And uh, I hope that the welcoming experience that you've had in Petaluma is part of that stance that we have taken and we should be very proud of our community here. No, I think definitely we're stronger together than we are apart. I think that's very true. So, um, before we finish up, any last messages about the local Muslim community? Anything you'd like us to know? Any uh, Anything left on your mind here? No, I'd say that, you know, I, and I think when I was speaking about the welcoming and the openness, you know, I, before I came onto the show, I just wanted to, you know, just talk to the people. Is there anything else you want to convey to, you know, the, the greater Petaluman community? And and th- th- that was actually what came out. Yeah. And I didn't prompt them. I just wanted to, I asked them, hey, you know, I'm going to be talking on the show. Is there anything, you know, you'd like to, any concerns, any questions, anything? And, and the thing was that they, they were very appreciative of the openness and the welcomings that they have always felt. Um, and so, you know, and so I felt that was at least my duty to make sure that I can convey that to everyone. And, and thank you. And and please do feel to feel free to reach out um, if you are a, a, a minority or anyone out there who needs help. Our doors are open, so please do feel to re- feel free to reach out and 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 you know connect. Okay, and we have uh, the mosque is joining with us for an interfaith Thanksgiving service on Wednesday night, uh, November twenty first at St. John's Episcopal Church. So it will be great to welcome everybody there and members of the uh, Muslim community here in Petaluma. You have been listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM.
tried to tell everybody. 